on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Francis Leach with you, and I am so, so very excited to say. So very excited <laughs> to say that Sally's joined us again. Sally Rugg, welcome back. I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> thanks so much for having me back, and, and thanks for the time off, everyone. Had like a really rough trot with COVID and then post-COVID was sort of the centrepiece of the time off. But it's pretty well established at this point in the pandemic that like COVID is quite a serious disease um, and I have never questioned that. But, um, you know, for any people down the back who are still unsure, like it's really serious. I was really knocked about by it. But I'm feeling much better now. Yeah, you and me both. Feeling- so I'm glad to see you uh, up and smiling and doing okay. And with our thoughts with everyone who's dealing with the chaos that it's still causing, cancellations and things being moved around and, and then people getting sick as well. And we know that from if outside of the uh, at our side eye, we can see that those figures in hospitals around Australia and the number of infections and deaths due to the disease still continue to be stubbornly high, even though we're doing our best to live beyond it and also dealing with an election campaign as as well, which is kind of what we're going to be talking about today, just to get your sense of, of how you've seen it all and where it all sits, particularly when it comes to the issues that we're most concerned about. Yeah, and I'm really looking forward to this chat. Regular listeners of the pod, or even, to be honest, occasional listeners of the pod will probably know that I'm a real um, politics nerd, as are you, Francis, and elections are obviously the sort of like the Oscars season of politics, good, bad, ugly. It's sort of like the grand final of campaigning and hilarity and disgrace and everything that goes along with politics. But what I'm most particularly excited about, and I am excited about this election, is it really does feel like we could be ringing in a new government with the new parliament, and that would be really good. So your sense at the moment, and we're we're all wary of this, but, you know, if you had to sort of give your gut sense of how the campaign is running, if the currents are running, do you feel that it's running in a way that we should be optimistic about? Is that the best way of framing it without jinxing? (laughs) I'm aware that we did this about three years ago collectively and got excited. I certainly was very excited at the 2019 election and then you know, Morrison's government was returned and the Senate became a complete mess. And so, like, we've all had our hearts broken before and so I'm kind of, like, wary about making too bold of predictions and I've been trying to sort of, like, terrace my excitement in and um, not be too hopeful about the result on the 21st of May. But, like, honestly, I am feeling hopeful. I think it is very unlikely that Morrison's coalition government will be returned, as it is. My prediction is is that we will have a hung parliament in this term of parliament before the next federal election. Whether the election delivers one, I'm not so sure. I think Labor might just scrape through. What do you think? I think that that's a fair prediction. I think that's a sensible way to look at it. It seems that the independents across the political spectrum have uh, been gathering real momentum and running really smart campaigns as well, it has to be said, uh, and targeting uh, their campaigns uh, with a sophistication that I think their opponents have underestimated, particularly in those key liberal seats, which just aren't, been, to use sporting parlance, just aren't match fit. So the likes of Tim Wilson and Josh Frydenberg have never really had to run a ground campaign to win 
in their seats. And they're proving themselves to be not very adept at it because, A, they're presumptuous that they are going to be returned and have never done the work. They're probably connected to their communities in, in ways that, that have given them some advantage because they've been long-time incumbents, but they're just not used to the ground battle and it seems that they're being caught short. So the amount of resources in those teal seats, as they're so called, means that they'll get close to the line to, to retain their seats. There's just so much resource going into them. But there's every chance that either one or two of them, and including David Sharma in Wentworth as well, and, and we know that Sally Stegall looks like she's going to stay well and truly put in, in Moringa. So, yeah, I think hung parliament's a real prospect. It's just the, the makeup of that could be fascinating to see where that sits. And all the panic around a hung parliament, which we're seeing Scott Morrison try to peddle, of course, is a nonsense because the Gillard government in uh, its term, when it was re-elected in 2010 to 2013, actually passed enormous amounts of significant legislation despite having to deal with a crossbench that had given it its imprimatur to govern, but was certainly a crossbench that was not uh, uh, you know, in any way adhering to or ad- in hoc to the Labor Party. So it, it can be done. And uh, I think either of those two outcomes is much better than the return of a Morrison government, which we have seen put all its eggs in the basket of trying to pretend that low wages, higher interest rates, um, skyrocketing inflation isn't its fault. The cost of living issues, you know, Morrison will say, will sympathise with, but won't do anything about. And uh, working people, they need some serious assistance and we need a change in direction in order to make sure that people can meet their basic needs selling. That's right. And I I know we are going to talk about wages and cost of living and the sort of more economic policies that affect working people in just a moment. But just while we're talking about the climate independence or the teal independence, here in Victoria, I think the two um, women who are running as climate independents here in Victoria, Dr Monique Ryan taking on Treasurer Josh Frydenberg and Zoe Daniel taking on Tim Wilson, Those races are so exciting, I think. They're so interesting. I hope they both get up. Even if they don't get up, though, I think the presence of teal independents like Dr Ryan, Zoe Daniel, Allegra Spender and even Kate Cheney, who's running in the seat of Curtin, Julie Bishop's old seat in WA, what I think it is bringing to the election campaign is enriching conversations around the election. And I think it is enriching debates and policy considerations. And I think that's really good. And it's not just because these independent candidates are targeting some of the most powerful men in the Liberal Party, such as the Treasurer and someone like Dave Sharma, who's an assistant minister, but because they are able to encourage these very powerful men in the Liberal Party to talk about the issues that the independents are campaigning on. So we're recording this on a Thursday and I've just watched the debate between Josh Frydenberg and Dr Monique Ryan, the Kuyong local debate. And the whole time Josh Frydenberg was forced to not talk about what he and the Liberal Party want to talk about, which is I don't know, like starting a war with China or something, but instead was on the defensive talking about an integrity commission and climate change and a a whole host of really interesting policies that I am not sure would be on the agenda to the same degree without these two independents. Yeah, it certainly changed the dynamic of this campaign and it's a a wake-up call for all traditional political parties that 
there is an appetite for political engagement. There is a community of people who want to be involved in politics in a very fundamental way. And you can harness that if you adjust your processes to include an authentic voice for those people and a way to participate. And there must be a lot of head scratching going on around the major political parties who are very much set in their ways in, in, in lots of respects about locking out grassroots participation. And we've seen that with the New South Wales Liberal Party in recent times. And we've seen that previously in in elements of the Labor Party as well, where the executive or other major stakeholders take control of the process and alienate people who are willing and ready to have a voice in the town square. So this is the new normal. There's no doubt that Helen Haynes and those that came before her have set up a model that will be increasingly a predominant feature of the Australian political landscape. And I think that... I'm a Labor person, died in the wool, always will be, but that is not a bad thing because it challenges everyone else to be better. Everybody has to be better because the competition of ideas is alive again. It's not a po- it's not just a binary choice between one or the other, and that means we all have to get our shit together, and that surely has to mean better outcomes. Surely, Sally. <laughs> It surely must. And so you were just saying that you're a a Labor person and so I would describe myself as like oscillating either between like a completely disenchanted, furious voter or like hyper-engaged political (laughs) weapon perhaps. So like this election I was giving some time to the Jackie Lambie candidate down in Tasmania for while I was down there because I think she's really interesting and that sixth spot in the Senate down there could either go to Eric Abetz or someone else. I think Jackie Lambie's got a chance of knocking off Abetz and that's that's what I'm all about really. Here in Victoria I've given money to the independents I've just mentioned and I've signed up to volunteer for the Labor candidate for Latrobe. Jason Wood is the incumbent Liberal member there and I, how do I put it politely, I don't think that Jason Wood should be in Parliament. I don't think he's worthy of a spot in that place. And so I tell this story to sort of say that like when I say that I'm a politics nerd, and I'm really excited about the election. Let me tell you that I have got a plan of who I want in, who I want out, <laughs> and I'm spreading myself across the parties that are, that are going to make that happen. Yeah, you got the spreadsheet going, just like in Bridget McKenzie's office. Oh, let's jump into some of the issues of the week. So the big one, of course, was the interest rate rise, and it feeds into the issues around cost of living. And there's no doubt that this is the first of many to come as a consequence of the way the economy has been managed. But what I want to do here, Sally, is take you to Scott Morrison. And this is some classic Morrison spin and gaslighting. The way that this Prime Minister has over the period of his Prime Ministership dealt with issues and the way he's prepared to basically to a, a total 180 on whatever position he's had if he thinks he can get some political advantage of it. And he's done this on this issue where he's now trying to spin the idea that the interest rate rise is not a political issue. Just have a listen to this little gem from November of 2021 and then a classic Morrison from earlier in the week. Have a listen. Scott Morrison's already on the election footing, claiming only the coalition can protect the population from hip pocket pressures. Otherwise, you're going to see petrol prices go up, 
You're going to see electricity prices go up. Um, you're going to see interest rates go up more than they would need to. If the Reserve Bank raises interest rates tomorrow, do you think that will hurt the Coalition's chances at the polls? You, you know what? It's not about politics. It's, it's not about <laughs> politics. What happens tomorrow deals with what people pay on their mortgages. That's what I'm concerned about. It's not about what it means for politics. I mean, sometimes you guys always think, see things through a totally political lens. I don't. There he is. I don't. It's not about politics. <laughs> but as the Prime Minister, he really should be seeing things through a political lens because he's sort of like the chief politician and there could be some political solutions to the problems we face. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary. And also imagine telling a gathered pack of political reporters during your election campaign, God, this isn't about politics. Why do you always make it about politics? Classic Morrison. This is Albanese's response, and I just think that Anthony Albanese's actually he's found his feet in the campaign a little bit now. He's, he, the first week was an absolute uh, roller coaster disaster, but he's sort of found his his mark now and his measure, and he's sounding a lot more on message and a bit more confident about where he sits in the scheme of things. For this guy to say that anything is not political, this is a guy who gets up in the morning and what he has for breakfast is political. This is a guy who, when he was in the lodge with uh, quarantining, didn't take his economic policy advisor, he didn't take his national security advisor, he took his photographer. He took his photographer. Everything that this guy does is political. This guy, for everything, is an opportunity to play politics. He doesn't have legislation, he has legislation. They sit around the cabinet, they don't think about the national interests, they think about how can we wedge Labor on this issue. Anthony Albanese, after Scott Morrison said that uh, the interest rate rise wasn't about politics, so it feels like he's found his rhythm now on the campaign trail for the final two weeks to come. But I think that this is an interesting time for him because this election has become very much about bread and butter and kitchen table issues in a way that we haven't had for a long time. Uh, it's very much about how much can I afford and how am I going to be able to pay the bills next week and can I put petrol in my car and my interest rate's gone up and it means that I'm not able to have that holiday I wanted or that pair of shoes the kids need. So these are really grassroots things which probably play to Albanese's lived experience a lot more than many others. That's right and I think that Albanese has risen to the challenge of talking about these issues facing families and, and people around the country in a much more suitable way and, and certainly with a way in a way that does understand the issue. And I think as well, Morrison is still making this same mistake. Far be it for me to give Morrison any advice on political comms, but is still making the same mistake where instead of hearing about an issue and saying, I know it's really hard for Australians out there, whether it's with the COVID lockdown or whether it's with interest rates rising or whatever it might be, saying, I understand how hard it is and this is what we're doing about it. Morrison's approach is to say, everything's great. No, no, like Australia is the best country in the world. Everything's wonderful. He even said the other day, 
a few hours after the Reserve Bank announced the interest rate rise and that more would soon follow, Morrison dismissed that this would be a problem for most Australians because Australians, according to Morrison, had squirrelled away loads of money during the pandemic, which was certainly true for high-income Australians, the sort of managerial class who were able to work from home perhaps receive JobKeeper or, you know, were just able to continue their white-collar jobs working from home and not, you know, incurring the same level of expenses. The Prime Minister saying, oh, well, you know, Australians will be fine with this interest rate rise because they're smart and they've squirreled away some savings. They're going to be okay. It's so clear who he is talking to and who he is not talking to. When he says, there's no issue, Australia's the best country in the world, we're so lucky, that's probably reflected in a lot of, uh, you know, wealthy voters, but it just completely erases and ignores the vast majority of people doing it tough. And I know that one of the issues that is particularly close to your heart, and I saw you tweeting about it during the week, Sally, was about access to home ownership. And we saw the Labor Party's policy launched last Sunday, uh, or two Sundays back by the time you hear this, which was about partnering with people to actually get a stakehold in the overheated property market by being uh, able to provide some capital funding alongside an individual's capacity to pay their own way and a commitment to more social housing. Not enough, and we need more of it. And as a child of social housing, I know what it means to grow up in a home that is stable and feels comfortable and familiar and strong because the government helped my parents buy a home. For me, this is a natural domain. I think it's a great idea and more of it. But the Prime Minister still doesn't get it and it's never been in the Liberal Party's DNA to embrace home ownership as a broader church than just an investment vehicle for people who want to make money. And it's serving two gods here, our housing market at the moment. It is the primary uh, investment vehicle for most Australians and there's problems with that because it's also supposed to be the provision of fundamental human right of shelter. And these two things are not always Sympathetic with one another, and we've got to do something about it. We have to do something about it, and it seems that this government simply refuses to acknowledge that it has a responsibility to make it more accessible for more people, even for those who can't afford a mortgage at the moment. And I think the um, the residents across South Australia would have scoffed with laughter when they saw Morrison's response to Labor's housing policy with the proposal being that the government would go in with the homeowner to provide that capital, as you said. This scheme exists across South Australia already. And so for Morrison to sort of flap about how it's... I mean, you've got Anthony Albanese at you with the kitchen table which I don't think was the attack that he thought it was. I can imagine a lot of people being like, oh, great, I'd like to meet that guy. <laughs> you know, like, sure. Is he going to make me a cup of tea? Is he gonna- yeah, is he going to come and see how I am and ask me what I'm interested in this election? I don't know. It's very strange sledge. But, yeah, so for Morrison to sort of react that way, I thought it was quite funny seeing as that policy is alive and well in South Australia. Let's have a listen to it because um, once again, it's it's an interesting classic Morrison flip on him doing a 180 on something that he said previously. So this was a grab of him in 2017 when one of these state schemes was starting up to try to help people 
get into homes. And the third thing they've done, which I think is really interesting, although they've done it through the government, is this um, shared ownership idea where the government owns a quarter of your house and, and you own the other 75%, which means you don't need as big a deposit. Mm. Now, taken together, I think, you know, good on them for having a, a good crack at this. Labor has a plan where they want the government to own your home. And not only that, you're last in line when it comes to your home. The bank has the first call over it, the government has the second call over it, and you come last when it comes to your own home. There he is, playing both sides of the fence as he always does. Scott Morrison first saying, it's a great idea in 2017, and then this week saying, oh my God, the sky's going to fall in if you have an equity share with the government in your home. I also think it's important to note, just on that second grab you played, that that's not even true. Like, if you haven't paid off any of your loan and you're in, you have a mortgage with a bank, then the bank will repossess your home. If you haven't paid off any of your loan and, you know, in the scheme with the bank and the government, of course you would be third on that list. But if you've paid off your loan, if you've paid your mortgage, you own the house, the bank has nothing to do with it and you are not second to the government in your home ownership. So it's, that's just not correct. I thought that this was a good policy from Labor. I think that there could be more, the places are capped at 10000 a year. Obviously, I think there could be more. So I think it's good. But for me, the biggest issue that we need to solve with the housing crisis is this myth that prices will just appreciate forever. Because what is the long-term plan? Are house prices just going to increase forever? Like, is that genuinely the plan? Because that's unsustainable. It'll get to the point where banks won't even offer loans. I think collectively, we as the Australian public, which, you know, does include the majority of whom are homeowners, will need to confront the fact that these investment properties cannot just keep getting more and more and more valuable. That's not a long-term forever plan, unfortunately. Would be cool if it was. Like, it would be cool if it was something like a, a speculative asset, like some sort of niche cryptocurrency that, you know, or a, a literal pyramid scheme where you just move further and further up. But unfortunately, houses, like, as you said, Francis, People need to live in them. And, you know, as well as being the fundamental right of shelter, there are all these other parts of owning a home, which I talk about all the time, but is about community and stability and security and dignity. I have a rent inspection next week and I'm furious about it. <laughs> I can't agree with you more. These are the things that I think are the most valuable elements to home ownership as well. And one of the key elements to that is the scourge of insecure work, which doesn't allow people to build a foundation with a job in a community with uh, some regular routine and, and a sense of permanency, which allows them also to get a home loan, which might give them an opportunity to do exactly what you're saying. So these two things go hand in hand. The inability to get a foothold in the market itself, which is you know out of control a lot of the time and the prices may mean that they're prohibitive and the fact that it's, it's also an investment market squeezing people out of an opportunity at the very bottom rung of the ladder to get their first property and the fact that permanent jobs don't exist in the way that they should and people cannot access the finance or be confident that they've got an income that will allow them to make that investment with confidence that they've got a permanent future and a permanent stake in their home and in their communities. That to me is the ball game. So I think those two things go very much hand in hand. 
Yeah, that's right. And unsurprisingly, the Liberal Party doesn't seem to have any real plan for insecure work. If anything, you know, they always have their eyes on greater deregulation, greater flexibility, as it's sometimes called. Certainly in the media, I have seen there has been no shortage of critical reporting and critical commentary about unions and various strikes. We had the teachers strike in New South Wales on Wednesday. Well done to all of you there. And, you know, like the framing of these sorts of movements and campaigns for more secure work is being, as always, demonised by the government. Before we finish up, I just wanted to ask your opinion on something. Do you think that the issue around integrity in government, waste and corruption, and of course, uh, federal ICAC is cutting through? Do you think that people who aren't as engaged in politics as you and I are, and people listening to this podcast clearly are if they've come this far, do you think that that is having an impact? Because we definitely think that this is a key issue to good governance and the ability to make good decisions in difficult times. What's your sense of that? Well, I think my sense is probably skewed. I think ABC's Vote Compass has an integrity commission ranked very highly. I can't remember precisely where it is. It's not number one, but it's, you know, it's ranked quite highly, perhaps in the top five. So that's sort of like an objective measure, I suppose. My anecdotal measure is that, like I mentioned before, I've been involved in like various election campaigns around the country and have been watching a lot of local candidates forums and local debates because I'm really into this sort of thing. And so what I have noticed is that in spaces like local forums, local debates where members of the public show up to ask questions. And now admittedly, these are members of the public who are politically engaged enough to show up at a public forum, but that questions around a federal ICAC and an integrity commission and transparency over government spending does keep coming up in a way that has surprised me. So I think take that with the subjectivity that it deserves. But uh, I, I think people are interested in it. I think that the best way to talk about an integrity commission is to talk about transparency over public money. I think it can sometimes get a little wishy-washy talking about a federal ICAC. I don't think that's a way to sort of spread the message <laughs> broader than people like you and I. Well, the government continues to try to paint any sort of integrity commission as something that is actually going to erode our democratic process. Haven't listened to Simon Birmingham doing his best here on ABC News Breakfast uh, just the other day, trying to convince everyone that uh, having something like a ICAC, a federal ICAC, would actually be bad for our democracy. Uh, I'm not interested in name calling. Uh, I'm interested in the fact that if we embark upon policy reform in these areas and our government's got several hundred pages of proposed legislation to implement a Commonwealth Integrity Commission. But what we don't want uh, is the type of star chamber model that brings down people like Gladys Berejiklian uh, before even findings are made. We want to make sure that it's a model uh, that applies in a way that provides procedural fairness uh, to all individuals before it. Yeah, she did resign uh, before appearing before ICAC. So let's oh, just put that on well, the facts well, there. Sure, Sorry. sure. sure. Well, whilst, whilst Lisa, all of those matters were being dragged through... The- 
there we go. So big kudos to Lisa Miller for reminding everyone that Gladys Berejiklian was not removed from uh, the parliament as a consequence of ICAC, but uh, the mounting evidence that was piling up against her on in regards to her behaviour meant that she actually resigned. So <laughs> good to have a bit of a live fact check there from Lisa. And also, what a funny argument, like, Premier Berejiklian ostensibly resigned. In the lead-up to the New South Wales ICAC, the witness interrogation that she had to receive, presumably because she knew the evidence that they had, she knew that it would be very embarrassing, she knew that there might be calls for her resignation, etc. To me, I think that that is an argument for transparency. That is an argument for public hearings because if that hearing had happened behind closed doors then there wouldn't have been an opportunity for Ms Berejiklian to feel embarrassed about some of the choices that she made. And I think the choices that she made (laughs) were embarrassing and, you know, potentially corrupt as the Commission will investigate. So it's such a curious argument against public hearings, I think. Well, it's another fascinating week in the campaign just gone by. Uh, Have you got uh, a long list uh, of uh, campaign events to watch, to visit? (laughs) I know that you're missing your Senate estimates fix at the moment because there's no parliament. I am. So the the Estes are on hold for now, so you're just filling that void with, (laughs) with other political fora. That's right. Well, so we're recording this on a Thursday. This evening I'm, I'm going to a, a forum with Senator Penny Wong, Senator Janet Rice and Liberal Senator Andrew Bragg at the Victorian Pride Centre. So that's going to be about LGBT policy, presumably. <laughs> um, it, I mean, it's, it's hosted by the Pride Centre. And then for people who are interested in watching these sorts of candidates' forums, like they're on all the time, a really good place to find them is Facebook because you know, your candidates will post these forums and also the press club are running sort of several times a week at the moment, doing some really interesting debates as well. I'm disappointed in a lot of the rhetoric this election. I think that there could be more ambition and vision across the board this election, but I just love elections generally, so I'm still having a good time. (laughs) <laughs> Me too. We are on the same page there. So it's so, so very good to see you well and uh, and back on the podcast. And uh, let's do it again next week, huh? Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Sally Rugg, follow her at Sally Rugg right throughout the election and beyond to infinity uh, on the Twitterverse and other socials. And I'm at St. Frankly. And, uh, of course, AustralianUnions.org.au for all your information about uh, how to join your union and to follow the election campaign issues that matter most to Australian workers. And that's it for this week edition of On The Job. Bye for now. Bye.